0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today I'm joined by pod regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week it's a deep dive into Champions League action as we ask if Liverpool's two-legged victory over City propels Jurgen Klopp into the elite of European managers and what he has to do to evolve the club from cup heroes to league winners. We assess Pep Guardiola's next move as he faces up to a painful defeat and ask, can you win the Champions League when you only play one way? And we address speculation about the futures of Old Trafford's striking talent as Anthony Martial and Marcus Rashford look for more first-team football. Will either leave Manchester United? OK guys, where else to start but last night's 2-1 victory for Liverpool in Manchester. I think we have to start looking at Jürgen Klopp, start to assess where he stands in the pantheon of top European bosses, because this was a result that few predicted, although to be fair to us, I think we we called it last week and perhaps even the week before. He's a manager that lost his best player in January, so he's had to endure a little bit of tumult in his time at Liverpool, but that was a pretty fantastic two-legged victory, wasn't it, Ian? Yeah, well,
1: we should have put some context in, Johnny, and say that Obviously, Jurgen Klopp has has reached a Champions League final before. uh, And and of course, uh, despite this two-legged victory over Manchester City, um, he's got history in this competition. Uh, We know that he can be tactically astute, uh, but maybe let's just say he's he's sometimes blind to one or two positions, which what we've seen is him correct that with the signing of Virgil van Dijk in the January window. And the stats on uh, Liverpool's defensive performances are quite startling. Um, since Van Dyke play, has played, uh, they've gone from an expected goals conceding 1.2 to down to 0.7, uh, so almost 40 uh, percent less. Uh, also, they've oh, I think won every every game but one that Van Dyke has played in. So uh, he sorted that that position. Obviously, you mentioned uh, losing Felipe Coutinho to Barcelona in January. Does he look like B- Liverpool's best player now? I'm not sure he does. I I think you know. Liverpool almost functioned better without Coutinho in the team and the reason I say that is when you've got a player as skillful on the ball as Coutinho other players around them will automatically defer possession to Coutinho and one man can't make a team at Liverpool tick the way that possibly Barcelona made tick by, by Leo Messi <clears throat> so I, I, I just wonder if it was a blessing in disguise and Liverpool fans probably won't agree with that but um I think the functionality of Liverpool is now better. Their overall play is better. The fact that they've defeated by far away the best team in England twice in the space of 6 days a 5-1 aggregate result as well. Um, and I guess look Klopp's um, let's see Klopp's reputation will have been greatly enhanced because all, all of Europe was looking at these two games and of course other clubs who might be looking for a new manager whether it be this year next year the year after will have noticed that it was Klopp who masterminded this. But Klopp seems to me to be a very, in a very happy place um at Anfield. This will only increase um his his joy and his sense of uh sort of uh, let's satisfaction in his job. Um and look it's interesting times for Liverpool. Um I'm not sure that they they have what it's gonna to take to beat Real Madrid this year in the Champions League, should they face him either over two legs or one leg. But I think if they were to get Bayern Munich and Roma, or Roma, and and I say that if it's a semi-final over two legs or a final one-off game, they'd be more than capable of beating those. But Real Madrid is going to be the team to beat in the in the, in the the last four. Um, assuming, of course, that the Juventus don't pr- pr- do a miraculous overturning of the 3-0 victory that uh, Madrid uh, achieved in Chirin last week.
2: Look, well, Jürgen Klopp's beaten... Manchester City, who are clearly far and away the best team in the Premier League this season, three times now. Um, he's in the semi-final of the Champions League, which is real overachievement um, for a club that has really only been in the Champions League for one season out of two over the last 10 years. Um, and the team is going in the right direction. No question about it. The goal scoring, um, the, the quality of their attacking play, as Ian points out, he's improved the defence. Um, so yes um, you can't argue with uh, the fact that that Klopp's status is increasing in the game the question you ask now and the question that's being asked is are are they going to be real contenders for the Premier League next season Um, and if you assess it on the basis of this season and the improvements he's made the other thing he's done very well is, is brought in a rotation scheme which is um, he's rotated players more than any other manager in the Premier League and that's more or less solved the problem he had with um, with the winter um, period, which uh, hampered his first two seasons at Liverpool. But look at the Premier League table and ask the question for next season. He's At present, he's got a 17-point gap to bridge to Manchester City and a four-point gap to bridge to Manchester United, having played a game more than both of them. So there's there's still a significant amount of work to be done there in terms of results against every kind of team in all situations, not simply against the team which as you know Pep Guardiola pointed out before the first leg, were the perfect opponents for them um, but you also have to say that it, they, re- they have the opportunity to recruit and they've been recruiting well um, in recent years. Um, to further strengthen the team to suit Klopp's way of play, they've got Naby Keita coming in into the midfield in the summer, who should um, greatly strengthen the midfield and and alter their attacking options. Um, they're looking for a new goalkeeper. I would expect them to spend very heavily on that position, um, and he, and he can afford probably to add another couple of players um, if any sports group are prepared to support him in the market and give them a bigger share of the broadcasting revenue than they have before. So that changes the dynamic and he'll have a better quality player and a a deeper squad to work with. My question will be how much can he change um, his tactical outlook to be more adaptable for certain situations in certain games, which has always been his flaw and the reason why um, he hasn't or most of, most of the times when he reaches finals of competitions, he's failed to win them. And, um, you know, if he fails to win the, the Champions League reaching the final, then you'd you, you'd have to say that the campaign is a success regardless uh, because of, you know, the, he has poorer resources than the opponents in the Champions League. Never expected to get that far. But going down the line um, as manager, with the ability to build on what he has already, then we start testing that um, that uh, capability of him as a manager to win with better resources against the better teams in difficult situations.
0: Ian, one of the things that I notice <clears throat> about Klopp and Liverpool's transfer strategy is they seem to be very fixed in their ideas about certain players coming in. Naby Keita, they're going to have to have waited the best part of a year to bring in Van Dijk. They were absolutely focused on, and despite the huge commotion surrounding that transfer, they waited to get it done. Uh, Oxley chamberlain was another one that they had their eyes on for a long time. How important has that been to their success in terms of the way Klopp builds his team?
1: That's true, Johnny. It's, it's a very deliberate um, methodology. It's something which Klopp has, has always used, but uh, especially uh, at Dortmund, and now you're seeing the integration of players like Alexander-Arnold, Alexander-Arnold, um, and Andy Robertson as well, young young players who have taken a while uh, to break into the first team but Klopp is quite meticulous in the way that he trains and coaches players and, and will only integrate them in a gradual way. So obviously players like Van Dijk who come uh, ready-made as it were with lots of Premier League experience are able to go straight in there. Kate is going to be an interesting one um, adapting from the Bundesliga uh, and also a team like RB Leipzig. Um, to a team like Liverpool, to to like chalk and cheese in terms of obviously tradition, history, status, uh, privilege. um, And young players like Keita sometimes can be a little bit scared of that. Um, So that'll be interesting, want to see. Uh, Question, will he challenge for the Premier League next season? Well, yes, they'll buy a goalkeeper. Um, There's been interest in Alisson at um, Roma and also Jan Oblak at Atletico Madrid. I think if they buy a central defender to partner Van Dijk, uh, strong um, and someone who can pass out like Van Dyke does—that'll be that'll be very helpful. It looks like they're going to u- lose Emery Chan, although who knows what a Champions League semi-final appearance might do for his decision making. And then obviously you've got the Holy Trinity up front. Um, who, if they keep them together, then are obviously as good as anything in Europe uh, and certainly England. Um, Liverpool's downfall in terms of their Premier League campaigns under Klopp has been their lack of consistency against teams in the bottom half of the table, not actually against the top. F- four top six. The record under Klopp in the top four, top six is very, very good and consistent. Um, so Klopp knows what he has to fix and as Duncan said it's up to whether or not Family Sports Group want to invest in what looks to be certainly becoming and is a very exciting project. Um, one word of caution <clears throat> that I would sort of just want to throw in <clears throat> that every Liverpool manager since Kendall Gleish uh, won the old First division title. <clears throat> they've been charged with winning the Premier League, and none has, has, has managed to do that. And we had a similar Liverpool team, and it was a Premier League campaign, not Champions League campaign, under Brendan Rodgers uh, four years ago, where they got very close to winning the Premier League. And of course, we all know that it was the you know built around the brilliance of Luis Suarez, and he fit Daniel Sturridge. Um, and then seven months later, or six months later, Brendan was sacked. Now. What Brendan Rodgers failed to do was to do what Klopp's done and get Liverpool to the Champions semi-final. Liverpool fans sate themselves on their five European Cup wins and on their his- heritage in the Premier Club competition in the world. And Rafa Benitez bought himself a lifetime season ticket of popularity with Liverpool fans, um, who some of, would you believe, would still have Rafa back, despite the years of failing to make an impression the Premier League because of Istanbul in 2005. So, um, if if Klopp was to get them to the final, or dreamland of even winning it, then he'd be unsackable for the next 20 years, (laughs) even if he didn't win the Premier League. So, as I said, a little note of caution. Get it right, and and this can progress. Then we need to invest, and it can progress. But if what happened with Brendan Rodgers, sold Suarez, didn't invest, it's a sack. Klopp can avoid that by you know, achieving another wonderful result in the semi-final um, in terms of his popularity, but what he can't get away from is it's a requirement to challenge for the Premier League and he needs to fulfil that.
0: Duncan, Ian touched on it there in terms of Liverpool being a good cup side, but having to um, change and, and, and grow into a, a, a good Premier League side means taking care of those bottom-rung Premier League clubs. How do you think they go about doing that?
2: I, I think they need to add a different kind of attacker. Um, it seems bizarre, given how much uh, how many goals the front three have scored and how good they 've been this season, but I think one of I think their key attacking weakness is that that front three need uh, space to play into um, they the, all of them are, are at their best when running with the ball at opponents and and running in behind opponents and we 've seen multiple times this season, teams who play uh, deep against them and deny them the space to run in be- behind them and close the space in front of them, stopping them from scoring goals. And, I, I, you know, for all the quality they provide and all the entertainment they provide, I do think their statistics flatter them in terms of the number of goals scored because what Liverpool tend to do, once they have a goal against an opponent, that forces the opposition out, and then they score in multiples. So they've had a lot of threes, fours, fives this season, um, and so so it makes it makes the attack look um, better if you weigh it on numbers than it is in terms of effectiveness across all game situations. So for me, if I was um, advising them in recruitment, and quite possibly they're, they're, they are doing this anyway. I'd be looking for a player with some of the elements that Coutinho had um who is comfortable in one-on-one situations or you know one against two situations and able to beat opponents, score goals from outside the box and break defenses from outside the box. I think that that's what they really need to to get them through those games against the bottom half of the table and also to get them through games like um Manchester United where where the opponent is savvy enough to, to design a strategy to stop their attack. and you know We saw Mo Salah at Old Trafford have um, probably his worst game of the season, um, not a single shot on target, only one shot at all in the final minutes of injury time, being marked by a converted winger in, um, in Ashley Young. But the reason that system worked is because the whole team were set up in a way to stop Liverpool's attack from functioning well and, and Mourinho had made the calculation that they don't have a plan B. If you stop the plan A and you score against them, you'll win games. And that that's what they have to change for me, if if they're to be real contenders for a Premier League.
0: Okay, moving on to Man City, Ian, what will it take for them to win the Champions League? Because they've spent, as um we've mentioned several times on this podcast over the last few months, more money than anyone else in the history of football to get this team together. So, if that's not enough, what will be?
1: Um, I would go back to um, Roman Abramovich's quest for the uh, the Holy Grail of the of the Champions League trophy. It took uh, about a billion pounds of investment over uh, the eleven years that until twenty twelve that he was in Ch- it had owned the club, <clears throat> and um, in order to to win the Champions League, and um, Ironically, uh, on that day in Munich, probably the, the weakest Chelsea team in terms of starting 11 started that game and then went on, obviously, to, to beat Bayern Munich on penalties on their own ground. And the difference that I saw in the, in the team that won the Champions League to the team that came so close, quarterfinals, semifinals, uh, throughout that, those 11 years was their mental strength they had experience if you think about the team that did start drogba lampard terry and Czech as its spine all of them in the absolute prime of their careers late 20s uh terry sorry didn't start that game obviously but um went through the campaign they, uh, he, did, they he, had, did
2: have a, he did have his kit on you know to remember he was, he was that, that's
1: up. that's what confused me duncan as I, I was thinking about the winning pictures at the end and the <laughs> shin pads yeah um, I think he was wearing the, the green jacket at the Masters last weekend at training as well wasn't he? Uh, <laughs> down, down at Villa, Villa's training ground so anyway uh, yeah and, and, and that's what you need to get yourself over the line um, is that mental strength that experience do you know what? The experience of disappointment of getting so close of being in a semi-final and losing in the last minute and and converting that disappointment into the joy of winning, and what we see right now is a relatively young Manchester City side, relatively inexperienced. Look at the team who started, uh, some of the players who up front who started last night, and um, hisos, Bernardo Silva, Sani, and Sterling. They don't have yet in their armour the experience of huge disappointment, of the experience of playing at that level, concentrating for ninety-four, ninety-five minutes to play it 100%, 100% and be on it. So, look, they've got they've got the right manager. You know, he's, he's proven that. He's won the Champions League. So, um, despite any mistakes he made tactically or in team selections over the last week, um, I don't think Manchester City's owners will be looking to, you know, to be firing Pep Guardiola anytime soon. Uh, I think they do believe in the, his project and what he's building and what they've achieved in, in the Premier League this season is justification of that. But they do need more... Uh, Let's say guile. they would more guile to, to, to be able to compete in the big matches. And I think, a bit like Liverpool, Manchester City don't really have a plan B. Pep likes to think he's got plan A, B's, C right through to Z because, you know, he, he's one of the best coaches in the world. But I don't think he does. You know, and I think he made mistakes in both legs uh, tactically. But then he will point out the fact that, you know, they dominated possession and they, you know, did this and did that. The bottom line is they lost 5-1. Um So I I think in terms of what do they need to win the Champions League? Well, (laughs) bizarrely, yes, more investment. He needs more experienced players. He needs a deeper squad. Um, I I don't see light for right replacements if Sané or (coughs) Sterling are injured or off form uh, and they rely very heavily on them. Uh, And David Silva is now in his early 30s and can't keep performing at the level he has this season either. So I think they they need to um, regroup uh, and a bit like Liverpool – be very meticulous in their recruitment strategy for the summer. And, and Guardiola's never been great at buying players, not really. You know, there's all the myth about inherited to at Barcelona, blah, blah, blah. Well, he did, <clears throat> but he's made some mistakes in the transfer market at each of the clubs that he's he's been at, Barcelona and Bayern Munich. And I don't think he's made too many mistakes in the last nine months. I think in his first season, he did. I think he needs to improve on that, or City's recruitment department with the manager need to improve on that. So um, I think that's what it'll take, uh, Johnny, if, if they're going to you know, go past the quarterfinals next year.
0: Duncan, you can have all the money in the world, but at the end of the day, can you win the Champions League playing just one way?
1: I think
2: you can with all the money in the world. I think, yeah, I, I, honestly, I think if you do have all the money in the world, you can win. I think I think it's a major limitation on... on The major weakness of his management is that he is obsessed with playing one kind of football. And he believes that this possession-driven game is better than other ways of playing and will win. And and you can see that from, from his press conferences. He keeps on talking about the statistics of the team, them having created more chances, having more possession, having scored more goals... In the opposition across the season, um, and he sees that as a justification of this way of playing. But I, I think it comes down to when you start to play the very best opponents, and if you, if the that opposition know exactly how you're going to play, then they will take advantage of the weaknesses in your system. And every system has a weakness. If you play high line, um, high possession football, if you deliberately choose agile small technical players because they sit they suit your system better if you deliberately choose younger um, players because you want more malleable guys who will follow your uh, very detailed tactical instructions without question then you leave yourself open to a lack of experience which Ian points out is is fundamental to winning the champions league that's why new clubs don't win it very often and and teams that have very few guys who won the Champions League don't win it very often. So you have a lack of that, but you also leave big spaces behind your back line by playing this high pressing system that the really best teams know how to exploit. Um, if you think Real Madrid will go, would have gone in against Manchester City and tried to to play them the way Pep Guardiola wants them to play. You know the the Nathan Redmond argument. Why don't you attack me? Um, not a chance of that. They would have, they would have quite happily sat back take allowed City to come to them and use the best counter-attack in football to, to destroy them. Um, and and that's the fundamental problem he, he, he's got. However, if you do let him carry on spending, if you do say, and I mean, the, the, here's the figure for Pep Guardiola on um, transfer fees committed and salary over the two seasons he's been at Manchester City, it's now over £1 billion. £1 billion for two seasons and he's returned two trophies. If you keep allowing him to spend 200 million more over two seasons than the, the closest opponent in the Premier League, and more by a significant margin than all his European opponents, and eventually they'll have a big enough squad of you know 22 absolute top players that you can get away with those handicaps because you're so much better in every position and you're able to rotate um, and you're you're able to have solutions in games when you where, when you're in trouble just because of the sheer quality of the players, but it will take all the money in the world or all the money in football um, to do that. I I think I think it's very difficult for him without having that significant spending advantage continually down the line to win the Champions League with this. Um, with this style of management and style of football is put in place. And I think you see the evidence in in what's happened to Manchester City in the two seasons he's been there so far. So he's been knocked out in the round of 16 by a, a club with much smaller financial resources, Monaco. And he's been knocked out um, in the quarterfinals by a club who are 17 points behind him in the, in
1: the Premier League. Neither of those things should be happening. There's maybe a case to argue as well that I think some of the some of the city players and <clears throat> Pep's continual um, you know quoting of stats and how brilliant they are and everything else probably con- you know does contribute to this and that is that they believe their own hype. And they, they went into that quarter final to me, they looking like a team who thought they just had they had to turn up and they would win it. Despite having lost to Liverpool in the league this season, they felt like they were almost infallible. And and, and it was the Manchester City fans who greeted the draw of Liverpool as as a good one and not the other way around. Uh, and yet, you know, I think they created three shots on goal, Duncan, over the two two legs at Anfield yes. at, the, at the Etihad, and yeah. scored one, one goal. So even if the two offside goals, which Pep complained about after the game, that they, they weren't awarded, they would still have lost 5-3. So there's really not a lot to be arguing about with regards to who were the better team over the two legs. And so I think this last six days with the Manchester Derby defeat and all of that meant as well has left a very sour taste for Manchester City in what should have been uh, a celebratory season. Obviously, they will win the Premier League and that's you know the, the, the main objective when you start out. But if you think about in the last, say, 10, 15 years, I'd be interested in the stats. I don't have them to hand, unfortunately, but how many teams win their domestic championship and the Champions League in the same season? From memory, only Real Madrid and Barcelona uh, and once Bayern Munich. I think and that's only happened four times off the top of my head in the last 10 seasons. And when Chelsea won it, last English team to win the Champions League, they finished sixth in the Premier League that, that year. Uh, and in fact, only qualified for the Champions League by the fact that, that they'd won it in 2012. The Premier League is physically demanding more so than La Liga, more so than the Bundesliga. And so you, you, you tend to come at a slight disadvantage. I'm not going to make excuses, but um, I do think that there there is a difficulty involved in winning your domestic championship and maintaining and sustaining both your fitness, your mental strength, and uh, your uh, momentum to take you into those latter stages. And Pep failed three times in three attempts with Bayern Munich, but won the title every year. He's failed twice now in two attempts in Manchester City and won the Premier League once out of those two years having not got to the last... Well, in this case, the semi-finals of the Champions League. So there is an argument for that as well. Um, not making excuses, but just saying you know, that that is one of the things you have to overcome if you are going to win the Champions League.
2: Yeah, I, I think and that's one of the other um, drawbacks of Guardiola's method. And it, it's happened. It's no coincidence that his teams... We talked about in this, this in the podcast months ago. It's no coincidence that his teams from Bayern Munich to Manchester City... Have declined in performance towards the end of the season because he 's so demanding of his players on the pitch he makes them run more than the opposition um, he doesn 't rotate his players very often he trains them very hard um, away from the games and he 's mentally demanding on the players so they get they get tired at this stage of the season, both mentally and physically, and the performances drop off and you know when you add that to the intrinsic difficulty of winning the league and the Champions League that you point out, that's a real problem for him at Manchester City. But I mean, last night, last, he did achieve something last night that I've never seen before from a football manager, which was in his post-match interviews, he managed to criticise four uh, refereeing performances from four different games simultaneously while explaining um, how his team had been knocked out of the Champions League. So he had a big moan about the referee from last night, and... Justifiably so, in the in the in the terms of the Sani goal that was disallowed, which shouldn't have been given offside, he had a moan about the same referee uh, not giving a penalty to referee, uh, giving a penalty to Manchester City in a game they won against Monaco uh, last season in the Champions League in the first leg. He moaned about the referee in the first leg of the Liverpool game, saying that 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 had made a big difference to the outcome of the match. And he also had a go at Martin Atkinson for, um, as he said, for not giving what he, he described as the most incredible penalty I ever saw in my life. Um, and Martin Atkinson didn't want to whistle, which uh, to me sounds very much like he's questioning the integrity of the referee. And we'll see whether the football association can pick up on that. But, <laughs> uh, Managers complain about referees all the time. But if if you're going to blame the referee after a 5-1 aggregate defeat in which your team had three shots in target over the two legs, um, you really got to look at yourself and ask whether what was more fundamental to the defeat was the fact that you changed your tactical setup for the first leg, uh, confused your own players, played a centre-back at left-back against the best uh, forward in the division and saw your team go down 3-0 by half time. Um, that, I would argue, had a lot more to do with Manchester City failing to reach the semi-finals of the Champions League than the refereeing performances in the two games.
0: Do you, th- do you think that translates to the players, Duncan? You know, that um, anxiety about the referee, the, the fact that he got himself sent to the stands. Is there a, a sense that his lack of personal discipline, as displayed last night, is part of the problem with Man City?
2: I think anxiety in managers and managers complaining about referees can affect players. Um, you, you do see games where the, the manager goes after a referee and then the players take that as a signal to go after after the referee themselves and end up getting booked or uh, sent off for dissent. Unquestionably, unquestionably, his decision to go after Lahaw's at half-time um, at about that uh, Sani offside goal, and, and Guardiola insists that he didn't say anything um, derogatory to a referee who, who you know, he'd announced before the match. He'd had n- numerous problems with in, in in previous games he'd refereed, which is already quite an odd thing to do. The decision to go after him at halftime and say enough that he got sent to the stands definitely affected uh, Manchester City in the second half, in the sense that he wasn't on the touchline, able to communicate uh, the changes required to chase the game. And they were still, you know, at that point, they were only one goal down. If they'd scored early in the second half, then then there was a possibility they'd come back into the match. But, but when you're chasing the game, that's when you need, especially in the second half of the match, where managers are, are required to make tactical um, changes and, just communicate things to the players as the opposition tire. If you take yourself away from the touchline in that position, you affect your team for sure. So so yes, it, I, I would I would say it definitely was to the detriment of Manchester City that he got himself sent off at half time
1: there. To be fair, um the great football analyst Liam Gallagher, formerly of <laughs> Oasis, called this before the game even started last night when he tweeted uh, about Pep's team selection, and obviously we can't say this on a family podcast. What Liam Gallagher wrote, but it was not complimentary. Uh, in fact, he did tell Pep to go somewhere where Pep wasn't prepared to go, and it wasn't the stands. So, um,
0: don't yeah. look back in anger, Liam.
1: Uh, hey I think you might find that that was tweeted back to him several hundred times. But uh, yeah, on the more serious note, look, I agree with Duncan on that. I think um, it was he gave Pep Gordon must take responsibility for the fact a. He criticised and pointed out that he had history with his referee. The referee, Referees are egotistical. They have to be to be what they are. They do care about what managers think about them. And they do think, oh, really? That's what you think? OK, oh, well, give me a decision to make, Pep. What does Pep do? Gives him a decision to make. Send him to the stands or not, because I'm going to complain to you about this. Guardiola has to bite his tongue and not give him a decision to make so that he can be on the bench and make sure that his team have got the best possible chance of overturning <clears throat> that um, the, the tie in what was the most crucial 45 minutes of their season so far. And what happens? He, he understands, and from what I could see, had no direct communication with the de- with the bench. I didn't see him have an earpiece. I didn't see him on a mobile phone. I didn't see anyone running errands and messages. It was just left Mikel Arteta to do the Pep way. And unfortunately... <laughs>
2: He did even have some, there was, there was someone uh, relaying stuff from the stands to the, the bench, but... could a imagine.
0: <laughs> guys, I mean, Man City are 13 points clear in the Premier League, so it's important that we stress that they have had a damn good season. I suppose the question that I would ask you guys is, have Liverpool set the template for next season's Premier League title challenge in that Man City clearly don't like it up them. They don't like that high press. Now, not everyone's going to have that such an organised press uh, to, and, and the players to put them under the kind of pressure that, that, that they were last night. But going forward, has there been a template uh, delivered by Jurgen Klopp that's going to make it more difficult for the kind of domination that we've seen this season from Man City? I
1: think it, when you're... Uh, any manager, whether it's Wigan Athletic or or Liverpool, you look to your opponent's weaknesses, and the first thing you do is, well, who beat them and how did they do it? So I think there's no doubt that you know everyone will sit up and take notice. I guess the what most people would point out because Manchester City should and will continue to get good results in the majority of their games, certainly in domestic competitions, is that you don't you don't always have the personnel to be able to do that, or you don't always catch. Man City on a, on an off day like Wigan did in the uh, in the FA Cup, so <clears throat> I think it's something which yes can be a lesson to others, but unless you've got both the tactical nous as a manager and the personnel to carry out what um, the, the sort of gig in that, that Klopp uh, so dearly cherishes. Um, then you will struggle anyway because they're getting behind you with the pace of Sterling and Sani, and they've got natural goal scorers than Aguero and Jesus. So uh, it, that's really what you're up against. It's not quite as simple as, oh, well, let's just start, sit down and watch those two Liverpool games again and, and you know, we can all take advantage and Man City get relegated.
2: Yeah, look, for all I've, I've spent several minutes this podcast critiquing Guardiola's management in terms of uh, Champions League. Success away from Barcelona, he is about to win his seventh um, league title of uh, his nine and nine attempts across three clubs. Um, Which, you know, always with great personnel, always with an advantage over the opposition in terms of personnel, but he still won seven out of nine. And that should tell you that clearly Manchester City will be favourites to win the Premier League again because the way he sets up and manages his team, although they have drawbacks in certain areas across the course of a league season, what works um, more often than not. Almost every time he's been manager, it's worked. So you would, you would expect it to do so again. Um, and Ian's absolutely right. You, you, can, you can be a manager of a lesser team and watch the way Liverpool have beaten Manchester City, but if you don't have the personnel to implement that, you, if you go out and try and press Manchester City high up the field um, and kind of take them on at their own game, more often than not, you're going to get beat 4 or 5 nil. I think Swansea tried to do that um, uh, before Carvalho came in as manager and, and that, was, that was, in fact, I think that was Paul Clement's last game as manager. Um, it cost him his job. Um, just to go back to the Champions League thing, um, the, the maturity, uh, the, the the experience of winning, I think, is, is very underestimated. Um, not just in terms of individual players, but the his, history of winning as a club. So he does have an extra handicap with Manchester City in that they've never won um, the European Cup before. And and just to get over that hurdle of being a new uh, European Cup winner is a is a big thing, and then I was a, uh, actually having a discussion with a Man City uh, fan this morning about that, and I, I I took great delight in pointing out that um, Dundee United still have a better European Cup record than Manchester City. <laughs> stage,
0: sand,
1: dancers. It <laughs> sand dancers, sand
0: dancers. Well, does that um, that's a great link, Duncan, because. You probably would have been sitting there um, while the rest of us were wildly celebrating Roma's performance last night. You would have been sitting there through gritty teeth because, of course, 1984, Roma versus Dundee United, semi-final of the European Cup, a very, very, very controversial second leg.
2: Uh, true, true, yeah. And, well, Roma were subsequently investigated and, and they have admitted that they, they bribed the referee £50,000 to ensure they reach the, the final against Liverpool in eighty four. So yeah, I think you'll you'll find there's quite a few uh Dundee United fans out there who are um hoping that Liverpool will be drawn against Roma in the in the semi final and that Andy Robertson scores a, a last minute winner in
1: Rome to put them out of the tournament. Fifty grand in nineteen eighty four? What's that gonna equate to now? How much of Rome are gonna have, how much of Rome gonna have to pay the referee next time? That's incredible. Substantial sums, eh? Ah. And then of course Liverpool beat them in the final, didn't they? In Rome in eighty-four. That's right. Kenzo won one 0
0: I think. If you if you want to see, if anyone's not seen it, there's an absolutely tremendous photo of uh, Jim McLean, the Dundee United manager at the time. Um, who had who'd sort of wound up the Roma players and as he's leaving the pitch, I think, in the second leg. Uh, the Roma captain and several players are, are are spewing invective at him with one flicking the bird in his face. Um, just Google uh, Jim McLean picture. It's it's quite something, isn't it?
2: It is, and, and just to just to correct you there, Johnny, Jim McLe- the only thing Jim McLean had done to wind up the Roma players was to beat them 2-0 on the first leg four <laughs> 0 And um the the reason there was such uh, an attack on McLean and actually um, the whole United team going to that game. And, and McLean didn't talk about it at the time, interestingly, but in his biography he talks about the, the being in fear for his life um, around that match because of the lack of security around him and the way the, the, the Roma uh, fans were behaving. The reason that happened was because in the, the press conference after Dundee United's 2 0 win at Tannadice, the the Italian press accused him of, of doping his players because they couldn't believe that a small Scottish club had, had beaten a team that included, you know, uh, Toninho Cerezo and Falcão, two of the best uh, Brazilian internationals at the time and had done it so easily. And, and McLean um, joked that um, whatever he'd put in the tea, you'd have to put in the tea every week. And uh, uh, unfortunately, that got picked up by the Italian press as an admission that he'd, he'd doped his team and was used as the sort of the basis of this um, campaign of rousing the uh, Roma support against Dundee United before they, they
0: travelled um, for the second leg.
1: Doping, bribery, Arabs. Where's, <laughs> this all gonna, where's it all going to end?
0: <laughs> well, I think we should probably move on to um, current Roma and what was an unbelievable result uh, last night in Rome. Ian, that must be right up there with the greatest ever Champions League performances.
1: It was sensational. Abs- and uh, a massive fan of De Rossi and he was absolutely standing last night. This is by no means you know, a vintage Roma side of the one that Duncan was talking about. And and of course, the, I'm pretty sure that we don't have the situations with um in votes of cash being being passed around uh, these days I certainly hope not but um to to lose four one in, in the camp now uh, and then to come back three 0 and win away goals is one of the I think the great uh turnovers in terms of of uh two legged results in the history of the Champions League against <clears throat> a side like Barcelona um who were expected to cruise through the semi-finals. um I said not not uh I'd say there's young, some talented young players certainly in the Roma side, and you've got the experience of Aidan Dzeko. and uh, he no doubt will be texting some of his old Man City mates this morning, uh, just to um, make sure that they're aware that he's in semi final and they're not. But um, is this the end of an year Is this the end of the glory year for this event for this Barcelona team? Where he lost Xavi, uh, Iniesta leaves at the end of the season, Pique, Busquets in the thirties, Messi over thirty. Yes, sure, they've got Suarez and people like Sergio Roberto. Uh, Obviously, Coutinho's been brought in. But to rebuild a team that's been forged and has achieved such greatness and dominated Spanish and European football uh, over the last 10 years, and maybe even longer than that, obviously, Real Madrid will contest that they have won a couple of Champions Leagues themselves and titles in that time. But, you know, a team hailed as maybe the greatest of all time uh, at club level, is it, is it their time? Is this, is this, is this a, have we seen a watershed moment, I wonder, Duncan, um, with regards to Barcelona um, and what they've achieved in the past and now what they face as a challenge?
2: Well, it's definitely the case that uh, the core of that team is ageing. I, I don't think Iniesta's has made a final decision yet on, on whether he'll, he'll leave um, at the end of the season. And you would have thought that losing that game would actually make it more likely he remains in that um, had they uh, gone on to win the the Spanish title, as they will do, and won the Champions League um, this season, which you would have thought they had a good chance of doing, then that would would appear to be the perfect time for a player of Iniesta's um, quality and history at the club to say, right, I'm going to leave for a final payday.
0: Um, they're, also, they're also invincible, Duncan, so at the moment So if they, if they were to retain that through the rest of the league season You would think that would also be a, a fairly significant achievement
2: Yeah, and, and maybe that'll be enough for him to say um, it's, it's time to go I, I'm not sure it's the end It's quite the end of the era um, Talking, I, I wasn't watching the game last night Obviously I was watching the Man City Liverpool game But I asked a uh, friend at Barcelona Whose opinion I trust um what had gone wrong and they said um, it was down to the coach. The coach decided that he was gonna defend, try and defend the lead um instead of playing the normal game. And their argument was that Barcelona just aren't capable of playing defensive for ninety minutes. The the more sensible strategy would play normally, score a goal and kill the the tie that way without you know without going overboard. So um it will have ramifications, and you do have to say that uh, those players uh, that the sort of golden era of Barcelona players will not last forever. And you also have to question the recruitment at the club, and that you know we've seen them um, splash ridiculous fees on Dembele uh, and Coutinho as a response to losing Neymar. Um, it's not a well organised club from a, a board level. Um, the spending has been very high in transfers, it is very high in salary. People um, question the the basic finances of the club and um, there's an expectation that they'll have to gather a lot of money in the summer's transfer market. Um, But they still have Lionel Messi and um, they still have a lot of quality in the squad and I would expect that's enough to sustain them over the next couple of years. Um, But what happens further down the line, we'll see.
0: Just on Messi, Ian, is there a clear and present danger to his legacy given the way that Ronaldo has been performing? Ronaldo obviously could rack up yet another European Cup. Um, that this at this late stage in their careers, the Portuguese could actually overtake him in terms of uh, the goat argument.
1: Mm, I, I, <clears throat> I think was I think Cristiano has always been on the wrong end of the argument about who's the best player in the world um, because people uh, aspire or, or naturally side with someone like Messi who's clearly incredibly talented and, and certainly one of the best players who's ever played the game. Um, and Graz Ronaldo is seen as someone who's more uh, physicality, strength, sublime moments of of talent as well, but somebody who's had to work a lot harder to his physique and his game because he doesn't have the, uh, let's just say God-given for want of a better word, talent that Messi clearly has. Um, Messi also has had the the, um, advantage of playing in a much better all-round team, a team set up to play around him effectively. That did happen for a couple of seasons at Real Madrid for Ronaldo, but it's not been the case for the majority of his career. But to win another Champions League, and remember, Ronaldo does have the one uh, gong that that Messi doesn't, and that's a a medal with his national team, uh, the European Championships, obviously. And Messi's always criticised about the performances of Argentina. So, uh, Cristiano's been nothing short of sensational. I would say that he's maybe the best player of the Champions League era in that competition, given the goals he's scored, the records he's broken and the amount of wins. And there's nothing to say that uh, they won't go on and win again uh, this season. And so, um, and Real Madrid are obviously the the greatest team in the history of the European Cup. when you include the Champions League era as well. So in terms of Messi's legacy, I don't suppose Leo necessarily would put it down just to, you know, Champions League. Uh, Obviously, you know, he's won a a lot of league titles and he's won the Champions League three times um, as well. So... It's um, it's a debate, you know. Even my my ten year old son actually asked me who are the best players, uh, and he said not not ones you can include ones you didn't see play. And I said okay, and I said uh, Messi, Ronaldo, and Maradona were my three top players. And he said, "Is it in that order?" I said, "No, I couldn't tell you which order." So, but I once did substitute Maradona in a game, so at least I've got that to say.
2: <laughs> what, um, what, what, did, what did Maradona say when you took him off Ian?
1: He threw shit at me and called me Heo de puta <laughs> <laughs> Where was this Ian? Oh it was a, it was a, a sort of um, All-Stars match that uh, I was involved in In Chechnya of all places a few years ago And uh, El Take, Diego... Your career takes
0: you to some strange places Ian <laughs>
1: It has, it has hey, yes, My team was brilliant I had an incredible team out that night And Diego was the captain and uh, Figo was uh, was someone in my midfields, I had McManaman and Fowler there. I had uh, Bobo. Uh, I had uh, Fabian Bartes in goal. Um, there was a Scotsman yeah. there, wasn't
0: there? I remember there was a story about this. Was there not?
1: Was I think it was me probably. I was I was one of the bench making decisions. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a manager. <coughs> yeah, so anyway, I, I I subbed El Diego uh, after eighty two because he was quite literally blowing through it and uh, and not capable of doing anything anymore. Uh, we are also losing 4-2 at this point, so uh, I took him off and uh, he wasn't best pleased. Let's p- <laughs> put it that way.
2: Uh, Johnny, the, the, the Scotsman was Ian when he brought himself on for
1: Diego to take the penalty. <laughs> in the yeah, exactly. I, I took that number 10 jersey with pride. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, we digress. Yes. Um, well, let's move on. Um, we've got a a uh, bit of uh, speculation regarding Anthony Martial. He's refused the deal at Manchester United. And there's also been some talk about Marcus Rashford's future too. Talented, pacey, young strikers, stroke wingers, because obviously Mourinho has adapted their game slightly. Duncan, what, what's your take on whether or not these two have a long-term future at Manchester United?
2: Well, there's no question that Marcus Rashford has a long-term future at Manchester United. Um, I think uh, that no way whatsoever that Manchester United would be prepared to sell him, um, even if he was to agitate for a move. I don't have any sense that that's what's going on. Um, I think, obviously, like any player, he will be disappointed that he's not had as much playing time in the last few weeks as, as a result of Alexis Sanchez arriving at the club, but his playing time over the course of the season is... Very high in number of matches he's appeared in is higher than I think every other outfield player still or close to that, um, and um, he's very much in Mourinho's plans uh, for next season. Um, Anthony Martial is because his contract has uh, one year left, and the club have an option to extend for another year. Um, there is obviously a question mark over his future in the in the sense that he will have to commit. To a new contract, um, I don't think any decision has been made uh, on either side. I know that his agent has been looking at his options elsewhere, very much in the same way that um, Mino Raiola went looking for his, Paul Pogba's options elsewhere when Pogba wasn't satisfied with his role in the team. Um, you know, as we as we discussed when we're talking about that, it's very much a standard way for an agent to operate, um, not necessarily because you intend to move your player out of the club, but as a way of gaining leverage in terms of internal negotiations about um, your, your, in this case, the player's own salary. So um, Martial's agent has that um, consideration. So it makes sense for him to talk to other clubs and see what's an offer there while Manchester United are trying to extend the player's contract. But also in the, in, in the sense of, um, look, uh, if he can come to them and say, well, for example, Juventus want to make my client starting striker um, and my client wants to be starting striker um, and we're not going to sign a new contract unless you can give me a guarantee that he gets that position. That that would be another way of, of using these things for leverage. Um, so, United have a problem to solve there because they do... They can run the contract down to the final year and extend, as they've done with with many other players. But Anthony Martial is a, I think everyone can see, he is um, kind of a moody player. Um, uh, he is temperamental in the sense of his performances in games. He can be exceptional. Um, arguably, uh, the most talented attacker that Manchester United have. And he, or he can be almost absent in matches. Um, and the calculation on what United do with him will, will depend on a number of those factors and may also include whether um, it makes more sense for them to bring a different attacker in in the summer um, and, uh, and cash in on, on Martial's value. Martial's value uh, should the
1: opportunity arise. I think Duncan's covered Martial very well there, Johnny. I would say... Um, that a teenage striker who bursts on the scene and emerges at Manchester United um, gets a, a renewed contract, an improved contract at the club, uh, becomes a full England international, but then starts to worry about whether or not his place in the team is secure or how much game time he's going to get and then decides to move away in Danny Welbeck. How's that gone for you, Danny? So, uh there is some, obviously, scope for excuse with Welbeck in terms of injuries, but I don't think anyone would say his career has gone on an upward trajectory since leaving Manchester United. And so if I was advising uh, Marcus Rashford uh, on his future and whether or not he's having second thoughts or first thoughts about uh, where his career is going, I would just say Danny Welbeck. And then hopefully that he will make the right decision and stay where he is.
2: Rashford is very highly regarded by Mourinho. He, he likes his character. He likes his qualities as a forward. He likes his physique. Um, he, as we we've talked about before, his management of him is very much concerned with the long term for Manchester United. He's, he he realises if you put a teenager into the, the, you know, the unadulterated starting spot at centre-forward, and moreover an English teenager, then that is a very, very hard ask for the player because of the press in this country because you are the centre of attention as Manchester United centre forward as we've seen with Romelu Lukaku. And if you're English as well, you're even more the centre of attention. Yeah. So it's easier to, um, for Rashford's development not to have the pressure of having to perform as a starter in every game for Manchester United. and And as good as he is, I think it's clear that Rashford is... A bit like those Liverpool strikers, in that he's at his best when he's got space to run into. He's not, he's not a player who thrives in situations when he plays against deep defences and has, has to receive the ball with back to goal. And um, and you know, Manchester United, you can't you, at this Manchester United, you can't be a central striker who, whose big preference is to play into space because that doesn't happen all that often.
1: And with Rashford, he's got two of the things which any manager. Uh, at any club would kill for, uh, and that uh, he's got pace and he's a natural finisher. You can see the way he takes goals; that his, his instinct, he know he knows exactly what he's going to do before he does it, and then he executes it very well. So I, Mourinho's no fool; he, he sees a young guy who he can coach and make better. And Rashford should uh, reciprocate that faith by staying at Manchester United and honing those natural gifts into becoming a much more effective player. Because at the moment, um, probably one thing that's missing from Rashford's game is game management in terms of uh, the chances he doesn't take. Um, And also, he's still learning how to play and off the channel on that left-hand side uh, and come inside. And and yes, he likes to run at players, but he needs to adapt his game, that he arrives in the box for other people to supply him with goals, rather than simply um, running through and and creating chances on his own. So uh, I do think Rashford is, you know,
0: better off where he is. Okay, guys, we're moving on to the quickfire round now, and given that we've had a little chat about the GOAT, the greatest of all time, we're going to look back on the players of the last 30-odd years, and um, I'm going to give the guys an option, number five. There's there's five players there, and uh, so Ian will go first, and he'll, he'll give us who he thinks is the fifth best on this list, hopefully get down to the best, and I'll give both guys an opportunity to tell us who they think is the best. So we're going to start. Hopefully it makes sense once I start. Um, Ian, number
1: five. Number five for me, Ronaldo phenomenal uh, of Real Madrid, PSV, inter AC Milan, Brazil. Uh, fantastic goal scorer. One of the most um, ex- exciting players to watch in the last 30 years.
0: Duncan, number four.
2: Uh, I'd, I'd have, to have Ronaldo that Brazilian Ronaldo at number four, and I would relegate Zidane and that list you've given us us to number five because I thought uh, that Ronaldo was the uh, all-time leading scorer in the World Cup at one point um, and uh, such a great goal scorer of goals through his career um, despite some, even after a very serious uh, knee injury. It was two periods in his career when he scored brilliantly. So I'd put him ahead
1: of
0: Zidane for that reason. Already controversy
1: and I'll, I'll 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 make the case therefore that Zidane, as an all-round player, uh, was so influential, not just uh, at uh, Juventus and Real Madrid, but for his country as well. Um, okay, all in a bit ignominiously, but uh, now you know carving his his own name and history as a coach. But uh, as a player, one of the best I've ever seen. So number okay. four for me.
0: Number three,
1: uh, Diego Maradona for me. Um, maybe a bit controversial. He's at the top. He's out of the top two, but. Um, I think he's a wonderful player, <clears throat> obviously beset by demons, but you know of the five they there with Messi possibly was naturally gifted um but played at a different era to the two um players we're going to be coming on to um when it's it's harder i believe uh, in the more modern game uh to sustain success,
0: and so for me i'd i'd have Maradona at third Duncan, do you believe that Maradona would be outside the top two? <sighs> I would make an argument for
2: Maradona being ahead of Lionel Messi simply because of the era he played in. Um, I think he was as naturally gifted a player on the ball as Messi, but he played in an era where opponents were allowed to kick lumps off him and and take him out of the game. And I I think if you put Maradona in in the current refereeing environment, he would be way, way beyond the exceptional player he already was. But I'll leave him in third place because he has been managed by Ian Magari, and that's kind
1: of. Be- <laughs> it's not the first career I've killed. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> um, number two. Uh,
2: well, then it becomes Lionel Messi for number two because um, Maradona uh, was managed by Ian Magari, and that that tells you yeah. my number one is Cristiano <clears throat> or not.
1: And I would reverse that, Johnny, for not for controversy's sake, but yeah, I think Cristiano. A wonderful player, and also someone who is only to be admired. But I think that Messi, for me, and I, you know, I've seen him play countless times. I've been privileged to see them both, Ronaldo and Messi, play countless times. And um, it's very difficult to split them. But uh, in terms of sheer gut instinct, who's my favourite player? Who's the best player? I would put Messi ahead of Cristiano.
2: My argument in Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo, has always been this: if you were, uh, if you were buying a football club. And you had unlimited budget to spend on just one player, um, and that player had to make the rest of the, make up for the the quality of the rest of the team. You had the choice between Ronaldo or Messi. Which one did you choose?
0: My argument would be at the moment um, they're absolutely inseparable. But about five years ago, you would say Messi was the clear favourite for this, and I think we won't we won't truly know. Until five years down the line, because it seems to me that Messi is slightly on the wane, whereas Cristiano Ronaldo has changed his game and uh, still has the opportunity to go ahead and and I think forge his own greatness beyond beyond argument. You know, I think we talked about it in this podcast a few months ago. We said that he intends to play on until he's forty. Um, and he's he, two
1: years older than Leo as well, remember? I think I think, you, I think you've, you've got to be very careful
2: with arguments about players being on the wane. Remember, um, the, almost the entirety of the Madrid press were saying that Cristiano Ronaldo was on the wane at the start of this season and he's, um, it was time for Madrid to get rid of him and look where we are now. Um, he's unquestionably the best player in the world at the moment so, on performances and, and I think but I do think your argument about down the line is an important one because Ronaldo has targeted playing into his 40s, he's targeted not only just proving himself the best player, footballer of all time his ambition is to become and to be recognised as the best sportsman of all time and I don't think Lionel Messi has that same either has the same physique to last as long as Cristiano or has the same um, focus so. and I'm best on putting up numbers that,
1: that Cristiano does. So Duncan if he's gonna be best sportsman of all time, has he has he got a, a ride in the Grand National on Saturday? <laughs> <laughs> we'll be seeing him at the US Open in June.
0: <laughs> Tell you what, I think he'd make a decent boxer looking at his physique.
1: <clears throat> yeah that's true. I can see him playing a uh, sweeper for uh, for the galaxy when he's forty, just <laughs> pinpointing seventy yard passes, like playing like, almost walking football. <laughs> Taking, he's, taking 40, he's 45
0: playing for the Galaxy I did taking see
2: a on, twe- taking all the free kicks and all the penalties yeah
1: exactly
0: yeah. <laughs> okay I think we're delving into uh, dodgy territory so yeah. perhaps we should leave it there that's all from us we'll be back next week rever- reverting to our usual time of a Tuesday release before 3pm to continue the debate you can you can follow us on Twitter uh, I'm at Johnny R McFarlane more importantly the guys are at Garbo SJ for Ian and at Duncan Castles for Duncan, obviously. If you want to get the pod as soon as it becomes available, please subscribe via iTunes. And if you liked it, please review and rate us on there too. So until Tuesday, thanks for listening.